So last Sunday, we focused in on the younger brother. Next Sunday, we'll focus in on the older brother. Today, I want us to focus in on the father. Pick me up in Luke 15, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But, verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to, that, to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, interesting, not my brother, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, you have to pay real careful attention to the screen in order to get this. Once a son struggling to make it financially in college, but too proud to outright ask his father for money, wrote this note. Dear Dad, school is great. I'm making lots of friends and studying hard. I simply can't think of anything I need. So just send me a card as I would love to hear from you. Love your son. The dad immediately responded, dear son, I know (laughs) astronomy, economics, and oceanography are enough to keep even an honor student busy. Do not forget that the pursuit of knowledge is a noble task, and you can never study enough. <laughs> love Dad. I love that. Isn't that great? <laughs> love that. I'm going to file that away. I know my day is coming. How many fathers can relate to that? Any father out there can, can relate to that? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. 
Many years ago, the great Lucille Ball, uh, that actress, star of I Love Lucy, was uh, uh, sitting down to an interview with Merv Griffin. And in this interview, they exchange pleasantries, and the conversation starts out a little light, and then finally Merv just asks Lucille Ball, he just kind of begins to bemoan the problems in their society, and, and they're just kind of ticking off the problems, and, and Merv says to Lucille Ball, uh, she, he, he said to her, he says, what do you think the problem in our world is? Lucille responded in a deep way to the question of what is the problem in our world. Lucille Ball, the actress, said, Papa's gone. She says, my belief that all problems go back to Papa and that if Papa was still here, he'd fix it. Some of us are acquainted with Bobby Bowden, the great football coach for many, many years. I think he's the all-time winningest coach in, in college football. Uh, he really made his mark at Florida State. And, uh, I mean, he was coaching for decades. And they once asked Bobby Bowden, well, what's the major difference in your recruiting of college students and the caliber of college students from back in the 60s to the early 2000s? What's the major difference? Bobby Bowden didn't flinch. Says, the difference isn't so much with these kids. The difference is you can can tell dad's gone. This morning I want to talk about dad. I want to speak from my belly this morning. My contention this morning is outside of the word God, I am thoroughly convinced that the most powerful three-letter word in the English language is dad. For right or for wrong, for better or for worse, by his presence or his absence, he's marked each and every one of us. For right or for wrong, for better or for worse, by his presence or by his absence, he's marked each and every one of us. All of us, when it comes to our dads, will have a hole. Some of us, if you're like me, you've had an incredible dad, and I'll talk some about that later. When my dad dies, there will be a hole. And some of us, because dad's nowhere to be found, you feel that hole now. The temptations felt this hole. Papa was a rolling stone, you got it. Wherever he laid his hat was his home. And when he died, all he ever left me was alone. The Bay Area's own Tupac on that infamous song, Dear Mama, took a few bar excursion, talked about his own dad where he said, 
had no love for my father because the coward wasn't there. We fresh prince aficionados. Think back with me now. You can recall maybe the most powerful, emotionally unsettling episode was when Will Smith's long lost dad from Philly comes to see him, promises him a journey across the country in his truck, and at the last moment decides to pull out, abandons his son, and the episode ends with Will Smith crying on his Uncle Phil's shoulder, saying out loud, why doesn't he want me? Dad, for better or for worse, For right or for wrong, by his presence or by his absence, he has marked each and every one of us. I've got a son of mine in the ministry. He'll, he'll preach here. Love this boy. He's 31 years old. His dad's been locked up since he was two. He says, my only vision of my father was the occasional vis visits our family would take. And he says, the only time I've ever talked to my dad is been on a phone through a plexiglass divide. First time I met him, he took me out to coffee's. 23 years old, Chris Davis. He says, Pastor, I've never had a man in my life, and I, I, I just, I just got to spend time with you. If I can just carry your bags. I said, all right. He had a call on his life. He paid for 100% of his seminary education. First day of seminary, at the seminary we sent him to, you got to wear ties. First day of seminary, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at him. He comes in the office. He just completed his first day of seminary. He said, how, how was it? I said, man, you look good in that tie, I told him. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, I went on YouTube to learn how to tie a tie. I just said it flippantly. I just went on YouTube. And it hit me. Dad never taught him. Dad. better or for worse, right or wrong, by his absence or by his presence, he's marked us. Sitting there watching uh, Roots with my kids, the, the, the new one that just came out, Memorial Day, and there was a scene that just kind of happened. I just kind of explained to my kids. It says, you know what? Part of the problem with the African-American family is, I mean, slavery just did a number on us. I mean, on the auction block, they're sending mama to South Carolina, daddy down to Georgia, one brother to North Carolina, another brother to Florida. It's just divide and divide. And I'm explaining this history lesson to, to my kids. But then I tell them this. I said, but that's still no excuse. 
See, what I want to say to us right now, some of us, we're fighting back tears because you're now thinking about your dad and what you didn't get from your dad and you, you should have gotten this and he wasn't a part and hear me, I, I want to sit with you in that pain and, and I don't want to just deny it. But at some point, what you got to do is you got to have a little conversation with yourself in which you say, I'm going to reverse the curse. I'm going to write a new page. I'm going to write a new chapter. I'm going to write a new book if I have to. I, I, what we've got to do is we've got to make up in our sanctified minds that I'm not going to be held hostage to a great-grandfather who wasn't there, or a grandfather who wasn't there, or a father who wasn't At some point, we got to stop making sociological excuses and rest on the truth that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We can move forward. I want to introduce you to my dad and put that image up on the screen. It's my hero. In my family, and you'll hear me talk about this, we can trace our family history all the way back to my great-great-grandfather, Peter. My great-great-grandfather, Peter, was a slave, worked the plantations of Asheville, North Carolina, um, uh, the slave owners, the people who owned my great-great-grandfather, they actually led him to faith in Jesus Christ. You just think of that dichotomy, it's weird. Peter latched on, and then when the emancipation happened, the family that owned us actually gave Peter 300 acres of land free and clear. According to family lore, he was married for over 50 years to his wife. They never got divorced. They had kids. My great-grandfather, Peter's son, Milton, married for 53 years, never got divorced. They had kids. My grandfather, Crawford Willie Loritz Sr., Sylvia Lucinda Gray Loritz, were married for 53 years as well, never got divorced. They had kids. Now my dad and mom just celebrated 45 years of marriage. Here's what I want to say. As an African-American man, I'm a sociological phenomenon, and it's all by the grace of God. In my direct line, there's no such thing as a man who didn't love Jesus or a man who divorced his wife. Now, some of you are saying, that's not my legacy, that's not my story. Here's what I want to tell you. Start one. Start a legacy. Start a story. So that 150 years from now, your great-great-grandson is preaching in some church and is able to put a picture up and just tell the family legacy. We've got to stop making excuses. It's happened. At the age of four, 1977, my father leads me to faith in Jesus Christ. I just come home from vacation Bible school, where in vacation Bible school, there's got to be a law against this. They showed a bunch of four-year-olds a film on hell. Scared the living daylights out of me. I came home. I said, what must I do to be saved? I do not want to go there. At the dinner table, my dad introduces me to Jesus Christ. I say yes to him. My dad was my discipler. Every single week, my dad and I had a standing appointment at the local McDonald's or Shoney's, and he'd sit down with a Bible and a napkin and a piece of, uh, and a pen, and I remember him showing me, this is how you share your faith, and my dad was my first Old Testament professor, my New Testament professor, my systematic theology professor, all of that was, it was rolled up in my dad. I never once heard my dad talk disrespectfully to my mom. I never once heard him raise his voice to my mom. He modeled before me what it looked like to walk in integrity as a godly black man. I saw that in my home. 
My dad was not a perfect man. My dad would mess up. My, my dad's an impatient person. He's got a quick temper. But when he would mess up, my father would come and apologize. I can actually tell you of times where dad would actually pull us out of class on his way to work, look me eyeball to eyeball and apologize. Decades later, I, I more remember dad's apologies than his mistakes. As I've been in pastoral ministry, I just want to tell you that I am absolutely convinced that we fast-track people. If you were to ask me, what is the primary venue for fast-tracking individuals on a trajectory that leads them quickly into flourishing and success and to emotional health and stability, the number one venue for that ain't the church. I think the church is a great supplemental venue for that. The number one venue for that is the family. You do know the first institution God creates ain't the church. It's the family. So I want to give this message today. I want to talk about three indispensable must gifts that every good father must give. Every good father must, must give these things. I'm convinced if we can look at these three gifts and if we can pass them on, if we can pass them on to our children, if we can pass them on to people we are mentoring, let me, let me just say a word about this. If you are a man, if you are a man, you need to be investing something in someone. Women too. It's called discipleship. There's no excuse. God has given you some things, and for you to sit on those things isn't healthy. It's actually the way to spiritual obesity. When you have had something poured into you, you must now look for someone to take what has been invested to you and to give it to other people. So either you, whether or not you have kids in your home is not the issue. There's a young boy around here somewhere that needs to be marked by a man. That's what Paul did with Timothy. Paul marked him. Timothy, was, did, they did not share DNA. But Paul took him under his wing. Paul mentored him. Paul poured into him. Paul says, I'm going to model before you what godliness looks like. And Paul says, I'm going to show you what courageous manhood looks like. And we know Timothy had a fearful disposition. Paul says to him, drink a little wine for your stomach. He struggled with anxiety. When Paul saw traces of femininity in Timothy, he called it out. Paul once told Timothy, God hasn't give us a, given us a spirit of fear. I know you were raised by your mama and your grandmama, but, but stand up, Timothy. It takes a man to raise a man. So this is what the church should be about. And over the decades that we have together as pastor and people, that's what I'm praying for. I want this to be a place of disciple making, and especially I'm going to talk a whole lot about the importance of men, either as fathers or spiritual fathers or mentors, to mark the next generation. So if you think this church is just about, let me get a word, 
No, no, no. Let me get a word so I can take that word and live it out and give it to someone else. Before we get to these three gifts, let me just say something real quick. I think one of the temptations that we have uh, as people who read the Bible is sometimes we can look at um, uh, biblical heroes in the faith and we we can kind of sanitize them, whitewash them, idolize them. Let let me just encourage you this uh, with this, fathers. As we come to this father in text, we're going to realize he's a good father, but he's not a perfect father. There's a couple of blemishes. If you look carefully in the text, they're there. Uh, one, one blemish is when his son comes to him and says, give me my share of the inheritance now. And we learned that was a cultural equivalent last week. We learned this. That was a cultural equivalent of the younger son saying, I wish you were dead. So he wants his inheritance now. I think this dad is a tad bit passive. The text says, and he gave it to him. There's no hold on. There's no let's, let, let, let's talk about this. There's no, I want you to think about this. He just gives in to his son. That's not good. If your metric for what a good parent is, what a good mother is, what a good father is, is the behavior of their kids, then we would have to conclude if that's your metric, this ain't a good dad. I mean, just look at the behavior of his two sons. His youngest son is disrespectful. He wishes his father was dead. He takes the money, goes away out into a far country, lives a life of immorality, squandering the money on prostitutes. The text says later on he's this immoral individual. He's self-centered. He's disrespectful. Then you look at the older brother. He's condescending. He's judgmental. If you even look at the tone in which he talks to his own father... I mean, there's no sense of compassion. There's no sense of honor. There's no sense of respect. If one of the qualifications for an elder is the ability to manage your own household well, I submit to you, this dad probably couldn't be an elder in most churches. So if your metric is a good parent is based on the behavior of their kids, then this guy ain't a good parent. But then I would question the metrics by which you judge yourself and other parents. If If being a good parent is contingent upon the behavior of your kids, then God for sure ain't a good parent. Let's just call it what it is. I mean, God calls his own children, Israel, stiff-necked and rebellious. Now just look at his kids. He says they whore after other gods. They're constantly living in sin. They're constantly living in in rebellion. If you want an example of how jacked up his kids are, just look to your left and to your right, and when you're done doing that, look at yourself. (laughs) See, I think this blesses me because now we're we're forced to acknowledge that we need a new metric. The behavior of our kids is not a commentary on whether or not I was a good parent. We've got to have some gospel distance between the choices our kids make and, and whether or not we would deem ourselves to be good parents. My dad always says this all the time. He kind of makes up these homespun proverbs. He says the problem with most parents is we tend to take too much credit when our kids turn out right and too much blame when they don't. My dad used to always tell us as adult kids, we're kind of in that 18 to 25 corridor. He used to always say, now when you go and you screw up and you make bad choices, don't you sit on some psychiatrist's couch uh, talking about what your daddy did or didn't do. (laughs) See, I hope that encourages you. 
especially for, for, for those of you as parents whose kids are getting older. One of the things we, we learn as our kids get older, we learn we ain't in as much control as we thought we were. So what we have to learn to do is to do most of our parenting from our knees. We, we, we have to learn to parent through prayer and entrust our children to God. You can't make your kids godly. You can't even make yourself godly. That's God's work. The best you can do is to create the environment and win, not if you screw up, but when you screw up. Ask for forgiveness and keep it moving. So this guy ain't a perfect father, but he's a good father. And we know he's a good father because he gives his kids three foundational gifts. I think every father, every mentor has to give those they come along these three gifts. The first, here's his son. His son comes to his father. He says, give me my share in the inheritance now. He's disrespectful. The father just gives him the money. I think a little bit of passivity. His son takes that money, cashes out, goes to the far country. It's probably this Gentile country. He's a Jewish kid. He's uh, already compromised, we learned last week, his ceremonial purity. He's living this impure life, immoral life, parting it up uh, with all these prostitutes, living an immoral life. No doubt this dad in a very oral, oral society as the first century world was back then, he's probably heard bits and pieces of information as to the whereabouts of his son. Not only that, but the text says a famine comes right when the money run, runs out. Famine hits. Uh, no doubt the dad has heard about the famine, probably knows that that famine is in the vicinity of where his son is. And here's what's interesting to me. The only time we see the father leaving the porch is when his son is coming home. We don't see the father leaving the house when his son is out there in the far country Instead, what we see the father doing is he remains at home, even though his son is experiencing the consequences for his choices, the father does not enable him by showing him a premature grace. Instead, what the father does in staying at home is he gives his son the gift of struggle. I just taught a men's Bible study with some very wealthy individuals in New York City. Just, just this week, they women come in and talk about fatherhood. I'm talking to the guys. These guys work at Goldman Sachs. Uh, what they get for a bonus is more than what many of us will ever see in a lifetime. I said to these men, I said, here's the problem. The problem is our boys are not growing up to become men. Instead, we're in this age of extended adolescence. I've told you that before. Adolescence is simply defined as wanting the privileges of adulthood without the responsibilities. That's classic adolescence, wanting the privileges of adulthood without the responsibilities. Adolescence has now extended to age 35. We've got 30-something-year-old uh, boys trapped in a man's body, sitting on their mama's sofa in their Star Wars jammies, playing video games all day. And I said, we're accomplices to the crime. Here's how you make that person a failure to launch. Here's how that happens. Coddling moms, over-nurturing moms, and passive dads. And it especially festers, not in impoverished communities, but in middle to upper middle class communities that can kind of throw money at the problem. I read a lot. My favorite genre of books to read are biographies. The basic plot line to all biographies is the same thing. 
biography centered on great people. These great people, it always centers on the same thing. They come from nothing, struggle, 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 make it big. Basic plot line. I don't care what biography you're reading, it pretty much follows that. Come from nothing, struggle, 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 make it big. You know what's interesting? We never read biographies on their children. Now, why is that? Here's my theory. These great people who come from nothing, struggle, 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 make it big. I think what they do is, the first thing they do when they make it big is they say, my kids won't have to struggle the way that I struggle. And so what these people who come from nothing, struggle, 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 make it big. What they now do is, they now take away from their kids the very thing that made them great, struggle. They give them everything. They put them in four-year-old leagues where everybody gets a trophy, you know, on their soccer team. They, they, they coddle them. They do all this stuff for them. And that's why we have kids who are not growing up. They're not being resilient because they have not been given the gift of struggle. So I'm so glad my dad. Let's put that image of my dad back up. I get to college and my dad... I'm 1,500 miles away from home. I'm in Philadelphia. My dad just drops me off, and um, he says to me, he says, Senor, I've been thinking and praying about it. Your mother and I, we can afford to pay for all your college tuition, but I don't think that's the best thing for you. <laughs> so you're going to have to come up with 25% of your college tuition. He said, I don't care how you do it. Sell drugs. Now, what's interesting, what's interesting here, me, me and my sisters compared notes, they didn't have that same deal. I mean, they got monthly stipends, they got credit cards, they got all that stuff. So, I mean, here I am in college, four years of college, and I'm, I'm running a low-grade fever with my father because I really wish, like, like I wish you would have left out the part about how you could afford to pay for all of it, right? But here I am, I remember, I'm working multiple jobs. I'm working in the kitchen. I'm working at a retail store back in the day. It was a retail store called Structure. Oh, y'all know about Structure? Amen. I mean, and I'm, I'm working, working summer times, you know, while my boys are finding themselves all over the world. I'm working. And I hated my dad for it at the time. Finally, I graduate from college, and I make a snide remark to my dad. I say something to the effect of, uh, man, going off to grad school, hope the Bank of Crawford Loritz is open. And my dad says, he starts laughing. He says, man, college was a proposition between me, you, and Jesus. Grad school is you and Jesus. <laughs> says, I'm praying for you. I moved 3,000 miles away from Atlanta to California, load up my little Nissan Sentra, uh, that my dad had just co-signed with me on because I didn't have any credit. And I remember co-signing with him. And, and right before we signed, he looks at me and says, you miss a payment, I'll kill you. <laughs> godly man, godly man. I remember my first, you know, first night sleeping at Paramount, little, little apartment in Paramount, right by Compton, nine iron away from Compton. I don't have a bed because I can't afford one. And I'm just going, God, you're going to have to figure this thing out, man. And I'm struggling, and I'm struggling, and I'm struggling. 
and three years later, I graduate. Two and a half years later, I graduate from grad school. My dad's got tears in his eyes. First Luritz to graduate from grad school. He puts his finger on my chest and says, you're a man now. I respect you. Now, let me ask you, where did the strength come from me in 2003 to leave a 6,000-person church that I was serving in Charlotte, North Carolina, because I felt like the Lord was calling me to plant a church ex nihilo out of nothing from scratch in Memphis, Tennessee with 26 people in a living room where we didn't have no money. Where did that strength come from? The strength came from because my dad positioned me. He got out of the way and positioned me to have to trust in Jesus for myself and to struggle. And my dad says that was harder on him than it was on me because he could have bailed me out stop coddling your kids gift number two I just think this is indispensable parents indispensable so here's this dad, uh, the, the, the young son, he's in this pig pen, um, falling on hard times, it's rough, it's tough. He says, here's what I'm going to do, I'm going to come home, I'm not worthy to be called his son, here's a speech I'm giving my dad, take me on as a hired hand. We learned last week that a hired hand wasn't even, wasn't even as good as a servant. The servant stayed on the estate. Hired hands were like day laborers. They lived off the estate, and you hired them, and you paid them an hourly wage. So this son is saying, I'm not even worthy to be a son, I'm not even worthy to be a servant, let me just be a hired hand. That way, my dad, I know I've screwed up so bad, uh, here's what my dad will do, he'll take me on as a hired hand, he'll pay me, and I'll be able to make it that way. That's his little speech. He begins his journey home. His father sees him walking down the street. The father starts running after him. Here's what you need to understand in cultural context. Older Jewish men did not run. It was considered undignified. It was considered uncouth for an older Jewish man to run. But he, he, he says, forget the cultural customs and, and personal preferences. That's my boy. All that can go out the window. He runs towards his son. He falls on his neck. The son can't even get the words out of his mouth until this dad initiates a party. He says, bring the fattened calf, put, put the best robe on him, which would have been the dad's robe. We're going to celebrate. He initiates a party. In the middle of the party, he hears about his other son, the older son, who's got a problem with it. He doesn't wait for the son to come in the house to bring the, to bring the problem. The dad goes out, and he initiates reconciliation with his son. So what we're seeing over and over again is a father who shows initiative. I believe, and here's, I'm at, I'm, at, I'm at your neighborhood now. I believe what Dennis Rainey, head of family life, says is right. Fatherhood is not something that happens to you. It is a call. It is a call that you must choose to embrace. Fatherhood fundamentally is leadership. And if you were to ask me to give you a thumbnail definition of leadership, I want every person to remember this definition. What does it mean to lead? It simply means this, taking initiative for the benefit of others. That's all leadership is. Taking initiative, taking initiative, taking initiative for the benefit of others. Fathers think ahead. Fathers don't just troubleshoot, we don't just react, we think ahead. And what's sad is too many parents show more leadership as it relates to training their dogs than they do their kids. I remember I came home from work one day, years ago. 
Quentin must have been eight or nine years old. Um, I walk in the house. He's sitting there watching The Sweet Life of uh, Zach and Cody. I think that's the name of that show. He's popping Oreos in his mouth. He's got the remote in his hand. I'm talking to his mama, catching up with his mama about my day. He pauses the TV, looks at me as if to say, can you keep it down? And I just said to myself, this joker is something else. I mean, we call this first world problems. Well, you can actually pause the TV. We couldn't pause TV when I was growing up. You just missed it. <laughs> you, just, you just missed it. But I just remember thinking that, at that moment, I mean, Quentin's not thinking about the mortgage. He's not thinking about how stuff's going to get paid for. He's not thinking about how his college tuition is going to get paid for. He's not thinking about any of that stuff. He just operates under one fundamental assumption, dad's got me. To be a dad means I'm thinking ahead for the benefit of my wife and for the benefit of my kids. I'm thinking about that. I'm taking initiative. Now, let me give you three ways we dads must take initiative. We must take initiative first spiritually. You don't need an MDiv degree. You don't need to spend a day in seminary. You don't, know any, you don't need to know anything about Greek. You don't need to know anything about Hebrew. You, you, you don't need to know any of that stuff to just be able to sit down at the dinner table, open up the Bible, read a few verses, and to just lead your family spiritually. I believe it is the dad who's supposed to say on Sunday mornings, family, it's time for church. And we're going to model honoring God by getting to church on time. We're going to model that. I'm going to lead this family spiritually. I'm going to invest in the development of my kids spiritually. So this is what I do with my kids. Sit down. We're just kind of walking through a plan with them. And a part of that plan is a manhood development plan. I'm teaching my kids how to shine shoes. Teaching my kids how to tie a tie. Modeling before them. Second way I think we do that is emotionally. Fatherhood fundamentally is connecting relationally and emotionally to the hearts of our kids. This is Leadership 101. You can't lead anything you're not connected to. So what this means, men, you must understand the gravitational pull of all of our hearts as men is towards passivity. I get that from Genesis chapter 3. Satan comes to Eve, Eve eats the fruit, and then this telling line, and she turns to her husband who was with her. Ain't that something? This dude is watching a snake talk to his wife and ain't saying nothing. It's passive. This is the bane of our existence as men coming home, turning on Sports Center, sitting in our lazy boy, watching our wives just be, you know, worn out by the kids, not stepping in, not taking initiative. That's not the way of authentic biblical manhood. We must show up and initiate. What does it mean to initiate emotionally? Know your kids' love languages. If you have not read the book, The Five Love Languages, you must get to know them. It'll revolutionize your relationship with your spouse. It'll revolutionize your relationship with your kids. Let me give you the five love languages. Here they are. Quality time. Acts of service. Words of affirmation. Gifts. Physical touch. All of us have one of these gifts. It's how we like to receive love. And your kids have one of these gifts. It revolutions. If I want to get to the heart of my 15-year-old, 
Recently, I just felt like me and my 15-year-old, we were disconnected. I said, I just need to get to his heart. So what did I do? Took him out to a great steak dinner at a place in Midtown, New York called Gallagher's. I said, me and you going, I have no uh, real agenda. I ain't going to critique you on anything. We just going to sit and we're going to eat some good food. And it's, it, here's Quentin's story. Because that's his love language, give him out 30 to 45 minutes. And this 15-year-old boy will go from grunting to talking in phrases to talking in sentences. What's happened here? I've just, I know what my boy's love language is. Miles, his is words of affirmation. Plus he's an introvert, which pretty much means tell Miles how great he is and leave him alone. Miles and I, we get on a plane the other week, man. We, 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 we go to L.A. We're hanging out for the weekend. I'm just telling Miles, Miles, man, I just, God's got great things for you, man. And God's hand is on your life. And here's what I see in your life. And you can just literally see kind of his chest getting bigger as I'm just speaking words of life into my son. And then how does he respond? He responds back by his love language. He just tells me some incredible things. But that's him. Jaden's, his, his isn't on there. It's food. Feed Jaden, and he's good. No, seriously, his is, uh, his is physical touch. But hear, hear me. Know your kid's love language and speak it often. Speak it well. It's connecting to their hearts. Tim Russert in his book tells the story of a dad with six daughters, and they had a routine when his six daughters were at home. Every single Saturday, they'd uh, get together, and these six daughters would play makeup with them. They put lipstick on him and, you know, the whole nine. Deck of They'd even paint his toenails. And, uh, you know, once it was done, he'd wipe everything off. Well, he tells the story of this one Saturday, you know, they had a makeup session, the six daughters. And, um, you know, he w- wipes off the makeup and everything, puts on his flip-flops, goes outside to get the mail. And going outside to get the mail, he sees the neighbor. And the neighbor comes over. They get to talking. But in the middle of talking to the neighbor, the neighbor keeps looking at his feet. And the dad's like, what in the world? Why does this guy keep looking at my feet? And uh, sure enough, he looks down, man, and there's the pink toenail polish that he forgot to take, to take off. And he just looks at his neighbor and kind of angles his head towards the house and says, those are my girls. True story. Decades later, he's on his deathbed. Six daughters are in the room. Dad's flatlining. He's passing away. Daughters are crying. In the middle of saying goodbye to their dad, One of them gets a bright idea, takes out some polish from her purse. They pull back the covers. For the next several moments, between laughter and tears, they paint dad's toenails one more time. What's the point of that story? That dad had connected to the hearts of his girls. We've got to do that. We've got to do that. Finally, I think we take initiative financially. Proverbs 13.22 says these words. If you can put it on the screen for me. Proverbs 13.22 simply says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Money is not unspiritual. In fact, money is really a thermometer of what you think about God. And let me just say this. I know I'm in a diverse church, but let me just say this to my minority brothers and sisters. One of the things I love about my white brothers and sisters, I'm not saying all of them are wealthy. I'm not saying most of them are wealthy. I love the strategic nature by in which they, they think about finances. One, probably, if you'd ask me a short list of some of the most depressing things I do as a pastor, I can't tell you how many funerals I've done for black people who when they died didn't even leave enough money to pay for the funeral. 
It's called a poverty mindset, and it festers among minority oppressed people because we're so frantically looking for dignity that we will have $210 in our account, see the brand new Jordans for 190. We will buy the 190 pair of Jordans because we just want dignity. We want people to go ooh and ah, and as a result, we don't set up our kids well or our children's children. We've got to come out of that poverty mindset. It is appalling how many funerals I'm doing for black people who don't even have life insurance. It's not godly. As, fa as a father, I view my role of providing as going beyond the grave. So I want to encourage you. Go out and set your family up. You don't have to be, this isn't about, about the amount of zeros in your bank account. But it's thinking ahead. It's initiating. It's coming up with a plan. This is what dads do. This is what dads do. We don't wait for the emergency. We think ahead of time. Third and final gift, and let me just rush through this one because we're way over time. I think a good dad gives his kids the gift of struggle. A good dad initiates. He's thinking ahead spiritually, emotionally, financially, and in other ways. But a good dad shows grace. We just show grace, man. We just show grace. Here's this boy. He's disrespected his dad. I wish you were dead. Give me my money now. He comes home. What does the dad do? He doesn't even let his son get the speech. He says, you're welcomed home. Not only does he welcome him home, he throws him a party. That's what grace does. This dad understood fundamentally what changes people is not guilt, it's not condemnation, it's grace. Romans 2, 4 says this, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. God's primary weapon in changing you is not condemning you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's primary weapon of change, of change, of change is grace. It's grace. Fathers, I think this is what we've got to be about. How this fleshes out, specifically, you ask God to give you discernment, but this is what it means to be a good father. Give them the gift of struggle. Show some initiative. Lead well. Embrace your calling. And show them grace and show them grace and show them grace and show them grace. When I went off to college, I had a little 1984 Honda Civic hatchback, and I was Poe. Like I told y'all, couldn't even afford the other O and the R. I was Poe, bro. And, uh, and, my, and my dad knew that, so he gave me this, um, I'll, I'll never forget, he gave me an American Express gold card with my name on it. Whoa. I mean, I saw this thing, man, my eyes lit up, and dad saw my eyes light up, and he said, oh, up, 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 up. Let's have a little conversation about this credit card. He says, this credit card, while it has your name on it, 
it's on my account. Which means because it has your name on it, it lets you make the purchase, but I get the bill. And because I get the bill, you need to understand, I'm going to lay some ground rules. This credit card is for emergencies. Say that word with me, he said. Emergency. This credit card ain't to fund your love life, he said. It ain't to buy clothes. It ain't to buy shoes. If your car breaks down, you use it for that. It's for emergencies. The first couple of months I was doing well, man. Then I hit one of those months where I just slipped up, man. I Shopping in structure, taking some young ladies out, you know, bought a few cheesesteaks. And uh, my dad called me from the road somewhere. I think he was in Chicago about to preach, but he was speaking in tongues when he <laughs> called me. He says, son, you know how much you charged up? I said, $700. He says, you're going to pay for every last dime of this. So, man, I worked real hard. I felt real shame about that. Worked, 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 worked. On top of the 25%, come up with an additional 700 bucks. I was like 19 years old at the time. Man, that was a lot of work for me. And I remember sitting down to uh, dinner with him at the end of the semester and just going, Dad, I just screwed up. Here's the money. And my dad says to me, Son, I've already paid the bill. It's already paid. And I learned a valuable lesson about grace. You know, in a sense, to follow Jesus Christ means we all get our own spiritual American Express gold, time, gold card because every time we sin, we sin in our name, but God gets the bill. And when he gets the bill, it says one thing, paid in full by the blood of Jesus. Friends, we call that grace. That's what our Father has done for us, friends. That's how deep his love is for us. And that's what we must model as dads. Here's what I want to do. I want to just spend some time. We're going to do two things. One, I just want to pray over all the dads. And then I want us to prepare our hearts to receive communion. If you're a father, I want to just pray over you. I want to pray over us that these gifts would be seen in our life and that we would pass them on. So if you're comfortable as dads, I want to invite every dad to come to the altar right now. So I can just pray a prayer of blessing over us. If you're not a dad, I want to encourage you to just stand to your feet. And just straight, yeah, I like that visual. Let's just, let's just put our arms over one another. I like that visual, dads. It's just a great visual, letting us know we're not alone. We're in this together. We're in this together. We might just want to fan out a little bit and just drape an arm over a fellow dad. Being a man is tough, isn't it? Being a father is tough. It can be a really thankless job. But it's the most rewarding job. Would you stretch your hands towards these dads and let's just stand in agreement. Father, I praise you for every man who's here. Thank you for them. Bless you for them. Some of these men at the altar, maybe their stories like my, my story. Grew up in a good home, had a dad who wasn't a perfect dad, but had a dad who lived this thing out. And we, we, we give you praise for that. And just a feeling of being fast-tracked in a lot of ways. God, we bless you for that. And then there's other men who are at the altar, Lord God, 
and they're more in the line of the Temptations or Tupac or Will Smith in that episode on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Lord God, they, they feel cheated. They feel like they've been, they've been left without a roadmap. They feel like they've been left without a GPS system, Lord God, and that they've just got to make it up as they go along. But Father, we pray, no matter where we are in the spectrum, that you would continue to lavish us with your grace to be the men you've called us to be. Lord God, that we would lean into you, that we would be godly men of prayer, men of the scriptures, who, who fall on our face and constantly ask you for the strength to love well and to lead well in the name of Jesus. Father, we pray for humility, not if we screw up, but when we screw up, Lord God, that you would just give us the humility to say, I'm sorry, to look our kids in our eyes and to beg for forgiveness, Lord God. God, for the grace to connect to the hearts of our kids in the name of Jesus, Lord God, that we'd figure out love languages and we'd, sp we'd speak them often and we would speak them well in the name of Jesus. Lord, for the grace to reverse the curse, that we would stand in defiance and we would say, we are not my history. I am not the failure of the previous generation. That today I'm making up my mind to write a new page, to write a new chapter, to write a new book in the name of Jesus. God, I just pray that, Lord God. God, for grace with our kids. Lord, for grace with our kids. It, it's, you know, I sit and I listen to some of those things those, my kids said about me, and I'm not deserving of that. There's just so many times I just feel like a complete and utter failure, Lord God. I know I've messed up many times. And for the grace, Lord God, to stay connected to my kids. Some of these men at the altar, Lord God, they're writing child support payments. And uh, Lord God, it, maybe it was because of a bad decision their mama made or bad decision they made. Whatever it may be, Lord God, may they just know the grace of God today. And Lord God, I just pray that you would restore back to them the years that the locust has eaten. Give it back to them, Lord God, in the name of Jesus, Father. Uh, restore, soften the hearts of those kids, Lord God. Renew th those relationships, Father God, in the name of Jesus. But Father, the number one thing we bring to the table as dads is, is a heart for you. So create in us a new heart, oh God. Renew a right spirit within us, Lord God. Keep us on our faces before you. Keep us dependent on you, Lord God, in the name of Jesus. And may we, may we act like men. May we walk like men, Lord God. Daily, Lord God, basking in your grace so that we hear you say of us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You are the kind of dad I envisioned you to be. God, we need that, and we ask you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen and amen. Let's give God a hand clap of praise.